Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. I don't really know if I have to live up to that introduction. Um, now, I have a PowerPoint presentation, but I want to tell you that it is not a very long one. And in fact, I think that it's interesting that the theme here tonight is power, today is power, and I think that power presenta PowerPoint presentations are actually the least powerful way to communicate. Um, but it's just a couple of slides primarily to remind me about what I'm going to be talking to you about, and I really want to be able to tell you a, successive, um, a succession of stories about what's happening with Australians right now coming out of the research that we do. Before that, I want to congratulate you. The people who work in the community uh, sector, I know that you put your hearts, your minds, your energy, your emotion into your jobs. And sometimes in our research, we encounter you and talk to you um, about how you're feeling as citizens as well as community workers. So I know the incredible job that you do. Um, so before I talk a bit about some of the themes today, I wanted to tell you a little bit about what Ipsos McKay Research does, just so that you have a framework, a kind of a outline about where I'm coming from in terms of the research that we do. So the McKay Report was started 32 years ago by Hugh McKay, who many of you would know and pretty much founded social research in, in Australia, particularly for market research purposes. And it's Australia's longest running uh, study on social trends and uh, community attitudes, attitudes of consumers to a range of things. Um, so what we do, and so now I've been the director for four years, what we do is every seven to eight weeks, myself and a really dedicated team of um, all women researchers, go out into the living rooms of Australians. And so we get together groups of people who know each other very well. <coughs> generally friends, colleagues, neighbours, um, everybody from 19-year-old girls from, you know, the beachside suburbs of Sydney to 65, 70-year-old ex-truck drivers from Townsville. We choose friends because most social and market research brings together strangers in a room, strange room, and asks them a whole series of questions. We don't do that. We like to get friends in their clubs, in their uh, living rooms, and we ask them what's been on their mind, what have they been talking about, what's been concerning them over the last couple of weeks. We emphasise to them, we don't, if you haven't been talking about climate change and you haven't been talking about, you know, worthy and important to topics, don't pretend now that you're doing so. And that's why we choose friends, because, you know, every time somebody starts to say, oh, I've been thinking about the serious uh, geopolitical trends in South America, somebody goes, no, you haven't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we like that. We also like to get a sense, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a great job for a sticky beak, because you honestly get a sense of people's homes and you eat their food, or more importantly, don't eat their food, um, if they're 18-year-old boys. Uh, <laughs> And you get a real sense of what's happening. And we do that cumulatively every eight weeks. So we get a sense of how things are slowly changing. Um, it's a unique and it's a, it's a privilege of a job to do. So what I'm going to talk about today is coming out of some observations and some reports and all this kind of work we've been doing over the last 18 months, starting with a report we did 18 months ago called Our Community, which really explored how people are feeling about the communities around them. Do they think? 
think that they live in strong communities and so forth. But it's also based on very, very recent um, field work that we did only six weeks ago. So talking to Dennis, and I want to thank Dennis for inviting me, but actually he rang me up and said, Joan says you have to do this. And there's obviously, she obviously put some kind of mechanism in my brain in my early 20s when people say, Joan says you have to do this. You go, yes. And then afterwards you go, what did I agree to do? Um, so I want to uh, talk a little bit about what I thought about today is I wanted to emphasise five different themes that I think Five different things I think that are happening right now that pose challenges or opportunities to people in your sector. So that's really the, the, the guiding principle. The first thing I want to talk about now, it's, um, it's unfortunate I've got the Prime Minister there. He's looking quite nice, isn't he? I actually feel a bit sorry for him. I think all the hairdryers in the world can't make up for his very, very difficult job at the moment. But, and also the other reason I have to say is that I say government, so I'm, I'm talking about a broad sense of consumers' attitudes to both consumers and, and, and voters and citizens, to governments at the state level and the federal level. To some extent local government, but in many ways local government is immune to some of the things I'm going to talk about right now. So governments are thinking short term. Uh, there is a quote from one of our groups that we did a couple of months ago. It says, we've been waiting since last century for that new road and it hasn't happened. Um, it will never happen. So I choose that quote because it, it reflects that sense of promise about something important and I never believe this is going to happen. So there is this very strong sense amongst the community that the kinds of things even promised are never going to happen, a real sense of disillusionment, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. I think it's important to remember when we talk about cynicism about politicians that this is not a new thing. Australians have always been pretty sceptical and, and, and cynical about politicians and that's not necessarily a bad thing if it doesn't get in the way, if it actually encourages to people to scrutinise government decisions and engage in government because they want to watch the people that are supposed to be looking after us. But I think it's gone beyond that. And I also think that our research, as well as research by other people in the sector, shows that in the last six to eight months, cynicism about and anger about governments is at a really quite an all-time high. Um, a number of things have triggered that. One of the things that we got a lot of is, is anger about the stimulus packages. The first wave of the stimulus package being the cash handout. And I think the thing that was interesting about that is that the people in our group said, look, we understand that the, that the economy needs to be stimulated, but why are they giving us money so that we can go spend it on more handbags or the rest of it? It's an insult to us. A lot of people are saying, well, why don't they use that money to give us water tanks? Because we all know we need to have them. Why don't they give us, why don't they up the rebate for solar? Why don't they up the rebate for um, for converting our cars from petrol to gas. I was really interested in the extent to which people were pr prepared to forego cash for something that they felt would have a longer term benefit. Don't get me wrong, they all spent the money. In fact, I did groups of women who'd spent the money before it arrived and they called it their Kevin Rudd handbag and they all came in with their Kevin Rudd handbag. So they'll take the money and they'll spend it but at the same time they were very cynical about that decision. They were more um, optimistic and more supportive of what they perceived to be the second wave of the stimulus package around the BER and so forth. But I think what has happened with particularly the sustained campaign about that is a sense of did we overspend? 
Um, and the kinds of spending we're doing now about this, is this preparing for the education that we need in 20 or 30 years' time and so forth? So a lot more supportive of the infrastructure spending for the stimulus because they felt it was about long-term planning. But more generally, the degree of anger in the community about roads, about public transport, about general, the general workability and mobility of citizens within cities, but also within regional Australia, is incredibly high. The frustration about what governments of all types are doing about water, river health, water infrastructure, we get a lot of anger when a stage is, is a stage is changed because of an outpour of rain or something. It's happened in New South Wales to some extent, Victoria, where they say, look, people in our group say, well, look, we understand that Australia is a desert nation and we have to be careful about water. We've thrown ourselves broadly into the task of, of needing to save water. And now, why are you changing a stage? Because it's just gonna make us more complacent. Real frustration about water and incredible frustration about renewable energy. One of the things we see amongst all of our groups is a concern about what's gonna happen with the price of electricity and what's happening with the, pro the utility costs increasing and what's going to happen with families under already quite a lot of stress. I think that if those utility companies don't do something about renewable energies at the same time as they're increasing prices, they're gonna have the kind of PR nightmare that the supermarkets have had over the last three years. So for consumers around issues such as road, public transport, water and renewable energy, the kind of frustration with state governments and federal governments with short-term decision making is incredibly high. Um, I was interested to hear David's talk about the whole issue of um, citizen disillusionment with democracy. I think there's some real dangers about the level of cynicism and disconnect that we feel in our groups around this. I was in Ballarat, I think about two months ago, talking to a, a group of women in their 40s, amazing women, all of them working in the public service, all of them very connected to doing things in Ballarat, um, very involved with local footy clubs, quite environmentally conscious. And one of the women was talking about a problem that she was having with a neighbour and issues around her street. And she said that her only recourse in that situation was to go to Today Tonight or her lawyer. And this is something we're getting a lot of. The idea that government won't help me, I have to help myself. Now we can't allow that kind of view about government being not there for me to continue. Those levels of cynicism, I think, are incredibly destructive for not only individual sense of empowerment, but empowering for their communities. And one of the problems is we don't have any political leaders who are prepared to talk up the system. It's a lot easier for them to say, we make all the right decisions, and the moment that those guys are in, in power, they're gonna make all the wrong decisions. Nobody is talking about some genuine good stories about what government can do now and what it can do in the future, because nobody wants to put that investment in now because the immediate reaction of people will be cynicism. But that, that trust needs to be rebuilt and maybe that trust will start to be rebuilt, rebuilt when your opponent is in government, so you won't, you won't get the immediate dividends, but you will eventually. My concern is that the brand of governments is now so low that unless we try and rebuild it, people are gonna continue to look to alternatives. So it's a real concern. Um, I think the implications are is that as community organisations that get help from government, you're part of that, of that important and I think missing narrative 
about the, the continued importance of all levels of government in terms of, of building communities, in terms of um, the services they provide, or we can continue to get this level of antagonism. The problem, I think, of course, is that actually this level of community antagonism about government helps some politicians in that they're not very good. <laughs> and if they're not very good, it's easier for them to do a job where people don't care about what they do except when they turn up at the ballot box. But at the same time, we don't hear enough about the dedicated people who decide to be politicians. So I'm, I'm generally concerned about this whole area and I'm particularly concerned about the what we're seeing in the polls, which was, an, was a real level of expectation that the Rudd government would deliver on some key issues. And what we're seeing is a massive drop because of that terrible sense of, oh, we had a bit of hope that he was going to do a few things, but he's just like everybody else, vacillating, not making decisions. I can't understand what he's saying. What is a sauce bottle? Um, you know, what is a fair shake of a sauce bottle? I've never heard that before. Um, and so forth. So the questions at the end, I think, I'll continue. Now, aggression in the spotlight. It was interesting listening to David's talk about that transition of a society from violence to money. But the issue of aggression in all different forms is something that comes up time and time again in the research that we do. It manifests itself differently at different times, and to some extent that's about what's in the media, but not entirely. So recently, issues around bullying, not only in schools, but also within workplaces, has been something that's been discussed. Glassing has been something that's been discussed, so alcohol fuel violence. I think my prediction is that either the alcohol companies or the utility companies will be the next big corporate bad guy on, the, on uh, Australia's agenda, but at the moment they're too busy hating the government to really find a, an alternative to the supermarkets in terms of who they dislike. Knifing has been something that's been particularly discussed in all the groups that we've done in Victoria. Bad behaviour on the internet, so um, cyberbullying, um, particularly amongst young people is something that comes up. Binge drinking, all these kinds of forms of antisocial behaviour is something that continuously be, is talked about. And this idea that we're in a society that's far more aggressive is something that's prevalent in all groups. And when I say this, it sounds like the kind of nostalgia about a better time that is something that only older Australians talk about. But we get these kinds of messages even in groups of, of people as young as their early 20s. I think if we went younger and talked to 16-year-olds, they'd talk about the antisocial behaviour of toddlers. I think it's one of those things that everybody talks about. But I think you can locate this concern about aggression within this broader context about the erosion of trust, respect and shared community values that exists at the moment. Um, I think, you know, it's something that that worries people to the extent that they feel like the only way they can get beyond it is by creating these kinds of housing fortresses where they do everything they possibly can inside, create as many barriers as they can to their kids with technology. This itself, I think, is a worrying trend because we know that our houses need to get smaller, not bigger, for environmental reasons. And we also know how strong a community can you have if everybody's inside and nobody's talking to each other. If people feel that they not only have to drive their children to school and pick them up so they don't talk to anybody on the way, if they have to walk their kids to school, they have to walk them right into the, into the, um, into the schoolyard. So my concern around this um, issue about aggression, 
around a lack of respect for each other is that it's often media led but all it needs is a couple of stories for people to think this is real and again it's one of those things that makes them retreat from a desire to engage with other people. <clears throat> when um, we did our report, I love that picture, <laughs> I chose that, I think it's fantastic. <clears throat> a little bit about what an ideal community might be. <laughs> they don't seem to be perturbed at all about the, um, about the Elvises at all. Um, one of the prevailing messages from the, um, from the people that we talked to when we did a report on the community was this sense of, of our sense of community in Australia eroding, that it wasn't what it once was. Lots of nostalgic comments, again, even from as young as people in their 30s. I remember a time when young people used to, you know, kids used to be out with the dogs and the bicycles and they'd wander the streets and people knew each other's names and um, nobody was left to die in an apartment and only be you know, that only to be found out two weeks later. A real sense that we've lost something. Um, what is the immediate cause of that for people? And it really is the long hours working culture in our society. Australians like to cling to this idea that we're relaxed, laid back, outdoorsy people. Well, the facts don't seem to reflect that. We're actually incredibly hard working people. We probably watch more sport than we do it. And this long hours working culture has continued dis despite economic upturns and downturns, despite the fact that for various points over the last you know, 10 years and even now, um, we have a skills shortage and we have actually, you know, it, it's for some employees, it's actually a buyer's market. So Australians are working incredibly long hours and this is one of the reasons why they say, I don't have any time to devote energy to my community, I don't have any time to get to know my neighbours or to throw myself into that community project that I think is important. I'm sure you've heard these excuses when you've tried to engage people in your own community projects. <coughs> Excuse me. People also say, look, we live in a much mobile, more mobile world. My grandparents or my, even my parents lived in a suburb for decade after decade and they knew everybody and they grew up with everybody. Now, not only are people busy, they may only be in a suburb for a couple of years and they may move from state to state, from, from country to country. Why would you invest that time in a community when you're going to leave it? And the other, I think, very worrying thing is groups, regardless of age and regardless of gender, sometimes say working mothers are the problem. They say, we've gone from a society where one, a family could live off one wage and the mother had the choice to stay at home if she wanted to and it was really those stay-at-home mums that created a sense of community that threw themselves into community projects. And now we have working mothers and in their SUVs driving kids to school and this is the erosion of community that's happening. That's a really worrying conclusion, I've got to say, and I don't think it's correct, but I think in absence of any other reason, people sometimes grab that. And I think, of course, the fourth element there about why our communities are eroding is that entertainment has all gone inside and kids are either doing crushing amounts of homework in, you know, not even just in year seven, year eight, even before that, and then all of their entertainment is screen-based and, and entertainment-based and uh, internet-based. So these are some of the reasons that people identified about why our community is eroding. What can we do about that? Well. I think the first thing is that we always, as researchers, when people use the excuse of time 
for not doing things. Look at it critically. And whilst Australians are no doubt working incredibly long hours um, and all of these things that have been identified are true, they've still found time to do a range of other things. If you can spend the time on Facebook interacting with the community um, because you've made the time to do that, then there's no reason why you can't do one, two, three, four hours of other community time. So questioning that excuse of time is something I think it's important. I also think the thing that is really heartening is at the beginning of the year we did a report on retirees, which is so not the right term to call them. They were incredibly dynamic, amazing group. And we looked at people who had, let's say, left the full-time workforce in their early 50s, kind of early 50s to mid-60s, it was one group we talked in. So maybe sometimes they'd gone from full-time to part-time or the global financial crisis had thrown them into part-time work. And then we looked at Australians all the way up almost to their late 70s, amazingly dynamic, interested group. A group that are often presented as being only really concerned about the cost of living, but of all the groups we talked to, they were the least concerned about the cost of living. They had a real focus on what this part of their life was about, which they often described as their third life, and they saw in terms of not just months or years, but decades. Their focus was on grandchildren, on friends, and on giving back to the community as much as they could. I know that they're in the armies of people that assist you in doing the work that you can. So I think that what we're going to have is an opportunity as the boomers not exit the workforce dramatically, but pare down their time of work, and a lot of them perceive that they'll still be in some kind of paid work into their 60s and maybe early 70s, but they also want to think, what else can I contribute to? So potentially when the age wave really breaks on us, and that's only a matter of time, it's going to happen obviously sooner rather than later, you may have an incredible influx of skills, energy, and so it's about really getting ready for them and what can you offer them in terms of engagement with the community sector. Amazing group of women. I remember one, um, amazing group of women and men, although we did find that the happiest people we found in that group were single women and married men. <laughs> single women were really throwing themselves into life and the married men were also throwing themselves into the domestic sphere. They were kind of saying, look, I've spent my whole life at work and I probably didn't spend as much time with my kids, so I want to spend lots of time with my grandkids. There were all these things I never had time to do because I was buried in work. And now this is an opportunity for Re to rejuvenate um, my relationship with my wife, who's supported me for the last 40 years. So they were incredibly engaged. The, some of the most miserable women we met were married. And in fact, <laughs> I don't know, look, it could just be the sample, but I have a, a vivid, one of my favourite stories from that field work is I was sitting in the lounge room of a whole lot of women in their early 70s in Adelaide. It was quite a well-to-do suburb. They were all from a, church, a local church group who did a lot of craft together. And uh, at the end of the hour of talking, I, I said to them, oh, do you have any goals at this time of your life? And a woman, one of the women said, I don't so much have a goal, I have a dream. And my dream is that all our husbands will die in the same month. So <laughs> we can all go on a holiday and do what we want. And I thought it, I thought it was a joke. And I, I looked up to laugh and all the women went, that would be wonderful. They were, they were nodding, fabulous. And as I exited the house and the husband who'd been away for this conversation came in, I almost, we're not supposed to, we have to be very objective as researchers, I almost said, you need to start cooking your own meals. 
you're for it. <laughs> now, let me move on to this next issue, which is kind of quite complex. I've got a bit of time. Joan, how am I going for time? Fine. Good, okay, right. My husband says I can talk for long periods of time whilst well, not. My husband says that. <laughs> yes, maybe they'll die in the same month so we can go on a holiday, Joan. I don't think so. <laughs> no, sorry. Okay. I don't know if people saw in today's newspaper, but the Lowy Institute did a poll which said that only, which gave the federal government four out of ten um, for their handling of the asylum seeker issue. And that totally meshes with what we find. We find groups completely polarised by this. We find groups that say, why are they letting all these asylum seekers in? And then we have other groups that say, why aren't they letting these asylum seekers in? So by trying to chart a middle uncontroversial um, course by not staking a claim one way or the other, the government is pleasing nobody. What a surprise. Um, there's no doubt that in the groups we do, people say things that can and, you know, would, you would describe as racist. But I need to dis, dis, to explain to you the intricate layers behind this issue around racism and around immigration in Australia. I suppose the first thing I would say, and it goes back to what I talked about before, is that for a lot of people in our groups, they feel that something is awry in the way our cities work and something is awry with the state of our infrastructure. So when we start to talk about Australia's population being four or five million more in the next five years, or by 2020 we're going to reach 30 million. People don't necessarily see colour, they think 30 million people, that's however many more million people trying to get the bus with me in the morning, and I'm already so close to the guy in front of me, we might as well be engaged. You know, so people are seriously concerned about how our system is working now for the people who are here. So until we start to address those issues around infrastructure, that there is a plan to get us there rather than just escalating housing costs, more difficult public transport, more traffic in the morning, then you're going to get this resistance to further immigration. And I understand why that's there. Um, I think the interesting thing, and we can go back 30 years to see how consumer attitudes and citizen attitudes have changed over that period of time in terms of issues about immigration, is that previously people were often saying we need to secure Australia for Australian secure jobs for Australians now and if we bring more people in they'll either take Australian jobs or alternatively sit on the dole. Um, that's not so much an attitude now. You rarely encounter that attitude. People recognise that actually there's a steel shortage and certain kinds of industries like aged care, particularly the caring industries, are going to need more rather than less people. So in many ways, the primary opposition to immigration is not an industrial one, but a cultural one. And I go back again to the theme I talked about before, about aggression, about respect, about shared values. And people are saying, if we introduce more complexity and more people into our society, how can we be sure they'll share what Australian values are? Now, people find it very hard to define what is an Australian value. In fact, they find it easier to describe something that's un-Australian than what's Australian. So I wonder if whether we're, a, we're a, a nation that defines our identity by things that aren't us rather than things that are us. So this, in some sense, is a bit of a fantasy about what Austra Australian values are, but nevertheless, it's, it's, it's keenly felt. Um, so 
And, and there's absolutely no doubt about it. The concern about further immigration is not about more Irish backpackers, who are just as likely to overstay their visas here as anybody, but Muslim Im immigrants. Um, in some areas, it's Muslim immigrants who are also of colour. Um, and I think there's a really interesting thing that happens when the issue of this comes up in our groups. First of all, there's always a bit of an indicator that's about to start because somebody says, I'm not a racist, but... So, you know, you immediately get ready for that. Um, I think what often happens in these discussions is people say all of the kinds of things that they're worried about, they're going to bring... They're going to be in their own separate enclaves. They're going to live by their own rules. They're not going to welcome us into their communities the way that we've welcomed them. Their cultural values don't fit with Australian values. All those kinds of things. They bring violence. They've come from cultures which are at war. You know, we don't say anything, but I often think, you know, Italians and Greeks and German Jews came here because of wars, and so did Vietnamese, but that's foreign. Um, I think that one of the things that also happens is that, especially for older participants, say, look, we know that we said these things when the Italians came, and we know we said these things when the Vietnamese came, but we were wrong. They came here and they worked hard and they integrated into our society and they brought us fantastic food and it's all fine. And if we could believe that the Muslims that come here would be the same, then we'd relax. So there is precedent that people recognise, but for whatever reason, they find it hard to apply that to the future and apply that to now. Um, I think this is, you know, such a crucial issue that no politician can afford to dodge it, um, and particularly those people who want to argue for a more tolerant, more accepting Australia. There's no way that you can do this policy under you know, the, over in the corner and hope nobody notices. You've really got to stake a claim around it. And you've really got to appeal to the better angels of the Australian uh, people because it's there. But in absence of arguing why, um, we need to have a more um, sophisticated, more tolerant and more open view about this next wave of immigrants who are here and coming, then... Oh, Three minutes, right, I've got to keep going, then I think there's a real problem. I just want to say very quickly, um, 60 Minutes did a show on this last week and then they had some letters coming into the mailbox and one woman said, we are not scared of Muslims, we are scared of people we can't see. This was the issue around the burqa. So part of that really is making those people visible to the people who are scared of them, visible in their, not as in taking away the burqa, but visible in terms of the diversity and what they can contribute to society. This is absolutely crucial. Or we'll continue to have this runaway discussion around Muslim Australians, which is really damaging. Finally, three more minutes. Very quickly, this is a complex issue. I'm getting a lot of, what about me? Where's my stuff? Where's my... Who's listening to me in the research that we do? In some ways, this entitlement complex of I want my chunk of cash, which is in some ways in opposition to what I was talking about before, but is still there, has been fed by these kinds of lumps of cash that we've been getting, not only from the current government, but from the previous government. This desire for better services, but also to pay less tax is a very um, problematic one. There's also a perception that we are the most taxed country in Australia. So this sense of 
uh, which is not true. There's a sense of I'm giving and giving and what am I getting back in return? And in some ways, that's about a lack of knowledge of what people get. But it's also about, again, a lack of advocates for um, the role that government play in our lives. The other problem I think here, and this is the lesson for you, is that I'm really unhappy with the way that politicians use language in the current system. Somebody should say to Kevin Rudd, never use the term working families. It's the most stupid term in the world. And I tell you why. I sit amongst groups of women who aren't married and don't have kids, but they're parts of families. They look after their aunt, they're connected to their brothers and sisters, they look after their cousins, and they say, when he says working families, he does not mean me. So why should I pay more tax? Why should I do more when he talks about delivering services for people that aren't me? I even talk to women in their 40s and 50s particularly, some of whom might have grown-up children living with them because they can't find jobs or they can't get rent, uh, decent rental housing or um, rental um, properties and so forth, who are working, they've seen their super divide um, almost halve overnight because of the global financial crisis, they've still got issues around their mortgage, um, they're wanting to put more money in super but they can't, they're working hard, and they say, well, I've got a 19-year-old and a 23-year-old, but does he mean me when he says working families? So we need to move around that kind of sectional interest that the commercial world does very well. It realises who they want to sell toilet paper to or who they want to sell a car to, and they talk to that group. Government is, is trying to deal with this kind of language of sectional interest, and we have to get away from it. Because I do believe that, that Kevin Rudd means everybody when he says the term working families. But trust in government is so low, people think he doesn't mean me. I'm left out of the picture and that's a real problem and adds to all the other issues I've talked about previously. Anyway, that's a lot to digest, but thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.